Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Welcome. Uh, my name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor at City on a Hill in Forest Hills. It is a joy uh, to be with you this evening. Um, in the old tradition of churches, when a pastor would go from one church to the next, they would bring greetings from that church. I bring greetings to you from our church in Jamaica Plain at Forest Hills. And uh, just thankful for you. You guys are just crushing it over here. And we're so glad uh, for your brother, your brotherhood, your partnership in the gospel. Um, we're glad to be a part of this network with you. And we are excited to host you this coming Friday for Good Friday. So I hope to see all of you there uh, as, as we host you for that. So thank you uh, for having me this evening. And so this evening, we are going to be uh, jumping into the text. We'll be jumping into continuing this series called The Road to Redemption, looking at how the gospel show us how Jesus's life, death, and resurrection lead us to the forgiveness of sins. We see how God has redeemed us for himself. And I do have to say that Jenna, my new friend, I mess up everything all the time is my new favorite way to say that we need a savior. Um, I mess up everything all the time. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, we mess up everything all the time, and that is why we need forgiveness. And Jesus has showed us the road to that forgiveness. And so last week, uh, Pastor Aaron walked through the beginning of that road and showed how that road begins with an, an invitation. That road begins with an invitation by Jesus for us to come to himself, and it shows us the gentle and the lowly character and nature of Jesus. It shows us who Jesus invites to himself and who he invites to redemption. And so today we're going to be looking at the triumphal entry of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of the Holy Week. As we look toward Good Friday, we look toward Easter, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem as the coming King. And so we're going to be looking at a longer passage today, verses 28 through 48 in Luke chapter 19. And I'm actually going to give a lot of background. So I'm going to walk us through the text for a little while. And then at the end of this, I'm going to make some observations on how we can, how we can really apply this and what this really means for us. But as we look at Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel was a letter written to a man named Theophilus. Luke was a doctor. He had a friend named Theophilus who wanted to know about Jesus. And he writes this letter to him as an apologetic, and the word apologetic means a defense of the faith, a defense of why Jesus is who he said he was and what he did mattered. And so Tim Keller says that the book of Luke is really broken up into three distinct acts. So if you think of it like a play, you have a first, second, and third act. The first act of Luke is the first nine chapters. The first nine chapters of Luke um, really deal with the mind. The real controlling question in each one of these acts has a controlling question is this, who is Jesus? And that is the most fundamental question that you and I can ask because who Jesus is, if he is who he claimed to be and who he came saying he was, that's the most important question we can answer. Who is Jesus? The next nine chapters, verses, or chapters 10 through 18, talk about the will. And the question being asked there is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? So we understand who Jesus is as the very son of God. We see Jesus coming into the world as the coming king, God the son, then what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And then the last several chapters, starting in verse 19, we're gonna cover a little bit today, look at it again on Good Friday and then wrap it up on Easter. We're dealing with the heart. 
So we know who Jesus is. We see the call to follow him. But the question for us and the question we need to wrestle with over the next week is, will you embrace Jesus? Will you give Jesus your very heart? And the entire book of Luke, and in fact, our entire lives are pointing toward that question. They're leading us to this point, and it's leading Jesus to this point in Jerusalem where there is no turning back. He is heading down this road. And so in verse 28, it says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Jesus' entire life, from his boyhood to his entry into ministry, all the miracles that he had done, calling disciples, healing people, all was leading to this moment of Jesus coming as the Savior for our sins. God has become man, and now Jesus is being crowned as a king, the king that we need, the one and only who can come and make all things right, that there is only one road to redemption. There is no other way. If you're familiar with the idea, the idea of religious pluralism, religious pluralism, that's a hard word to say, by the way. Religious pluralism says that there are lots of ways to get here. There's lots of ways to get to God. So it could be through uh, the eightfold path, or it could be through um, the, you know, uh, these different laws, or these, these five steps you need to do to get to heaven, or being a nice person, or being kind to animals, whatever it might be to get you to living the good life, no matter how you get there, all roads lead to the same place. Well, the problem is that sometimes the road is so treacherous, sometimes the path is so hazardous that there's no way you could possibly get there. Just this past week, I experienced this. Um, I had the the joy of being a a chapel leader for the Red Sox. I get to spend time with the Red Sox and tell them about Jesus like every week. It's really cool. Part of that is I get to go down to spring training during February or March and spend some time with the guys. You know, I get to go to Southwest Florida in the winter. Sorry, I really struggle and suffer for Jesus doing that. And so I get to go do that. It's it's really a joy. It's a blast. So I have a plane that's supposed to leave Fort Myers on Sunday. And Sunday morning, I get a notification from JetBlue. And JetBlue says, hey, um, your flight's canceled. I'm like, no big deal, whatever. I'm sure it's the next flight. I go back and look at the email and it says, your new flight is Tuesday night at 541. And I'm like, oh no, this is not going to do. My wife is home with four kids and here I am in 85 degrees and sunny. This is not going to work. So I call JetBlue. I sit on the phone for four hours. I walk around the Sanibel outlet in Fort Myers listening to elevator music in my headphones as I'm like buying new t-shirts because I'm stuck there for two days. And I'm doing all this. And every time I think they pick up, I'm like, I get excited and put my t-shirts down. But no, I'm waiting for four hours. And I finally get someone on the phone who tells me, I'm sorry, this is the earliest we can get you back to Boston. You're not getting back any sooner. It's like, okay. I said, well, well, you can't do anything. They said, well, we can refund your money, cancel your flight, and you can book another flight. Well, I looked, the cheapest flight was $1,200 with a 12-hour layover that would have got me there at the same time. The only flight that would have got me there sooner was $2,500. So I'm like, that's not happening. No matter what I did, I was not getting back to Boston any other way. There was one way to get here. And when we look at the path that we have to take to get to God, here's the reality. It's too expensive. You and I cannot pay the debt that we owe. It is way too hard. And all of our frustrated efforts to get to God show us that we realize there is, no matter how hard you try, there is only one way and there's only one person who can tread the path of redemption. Jesus has to be the one to walk this road because he is the only one worthy to do it. He is the only one who could truly be the king of all creation. And the reality of Christianity, the message we're given is not, here's a really difficult path that's manageable for you. 
Here's a really arduous set of rules that if you're just good enough, you can fulfill. If you just try hard enough, you can get to God because who did Jesus invite? We talked about this last week. Come to me who? Not those of you who are crushing it and have it all together. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. What an invitation. Come to me, you who are tired, who are weary from trying to be good enough or smart enough, work hard enough, or just simply be enough. Come to me, you who are heavy laden with guilt who bear shame and fear and anxiety. This is the exact opposite messaging that the world gives us because the world says, come to me, you who will hustle, who will grind, who will work hard, who will put in more hours than anyone else and the world can become yours. But Jesus says, come to me, you who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. That if you lose your life in him, you will find it. Now, this is a really big claim by Jesus to say, come to me, lay all your burdens upon me. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, can Jesus back that claim up? Can Jesus actually come through on his word? Because if Jesus can't, and Jesus is just some other guy, it's a pretty toothless claim. It'd be like if you were to come to me and say, Stephen, I am drowning in student debt. Can I get an amen from all the students? Amen. Um, I'm about to default on my student debt. And I were to say, you know what? Come to me, all of you who are debt ridden, and I will give you relief. Now, I can't do anything about that. It'd be like that episode of The Office with Scott's Tots, right? Anybody ever see that? Yeah, I, can't, I don't have the money or the power to do that. I can't do anything about that. Coming to Jesus, we're coming to the only one who can do something about our problem. And that's why you cannot accept Jesus simply as a good teacher with good morals. You can't just accept Jesus as an example that you're to live up to. Because he had to be able to walk the road that you could not walk. He had to be powerful where you are weak. And to do so, he has to be our king. It takes one who is the only one who's good enough, the only one powerful enough to do it. And we see the type of king he is. Look at verse 29. It says, when he drew near to Bethage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent the two, two of the disciples so give you a little bit of background here. They're a few miles east of Jerusalem and they're making the annual trip for the Passover. If you're not familiar with the Passover, if you look all the way back into the book of Exodus, God's people, the Hebrews, they're in, they're in bondage to the Egyptians. God's gonna deliver them. And he says first that he is going to, uh, he's going to send the angel of death and he's gonna take the firstborn son of every family unless they paint their doorway with the blood of an innocent lamb. And if they do so, God will pass over them saying that that blood was shed for their sins. And they, they continued to celebrate this generation after generation by going to Jerusalem every year and making sacrifices, believing that God would pay for their sins. And they draw here close to Bethage. And so if you look at this, this is like, this is being, like a letter being written. So imagine that, um, you know, Theophilus really doesn't know the geography. And so if you were trying to explain to somebody where you're from, like I'm from a little town called Clay, Alabama. No one knows where that is. But if I were trying to explain to you where that was, I would say, I'm from Birmingham. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama, which most, some, most people, that's kind of near Atlanta. And so everybody kind of knows where that is. And then if you knew Alabama, I would say, oh, it's near Trustful. And you go, oh, where's that? Well, that's, that's where Clay's next to. He's explaining this because they're drawing onto Bethage. And this is super important because they're coming through the Mount of Olives. 
this really special place in the history of Israel. We saw David fled there after Saul was persecuting him. We see Jesus praying there time and time again. The Sermon on the Mount, which we covered a couple of years ago, that's where Jesus delivered the sermon. Numerous prophecies were fulfilled on this mountain. It was a symbol of victory and peace to come. And here's Jesus coming through this, gonna go down through the Kidron Valley into the temple and into the city. And we see in Jesus's entry, something really unique. Look again at verse 29. It says that he sent two disciples, two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, talking about Bethphage, where on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now I'm gonna tell you, this is a really strange command, right? Can you imagine being one of Jesus' disciples and he says, okay, I want you to go, go into town and go steal that Honda Civic. And if the owners come out, say the Lord needs it. Now what's gonna happen in Boston in 2022 if you go to try to steal someone's Honda Civic? You're going to jail. These disciples are wondering, what am I being sent to do? This seems kind of nutty. How am I, we're gonna just roll up and say, we need your ride and, and they're just gonna give it to us with no questions asked. How could this possibly be? There's only two ways you're not getting arrested in this scenario. One, Jesus prearranged it. Jesus said, hey, I know these guys, it's cool. They're gonna let you borrow it. We've already talked about this. But you notice that the fact that Jesus anticipated an objection shows us the fact that something bigger is going on. We actually see the sovereignty of God at work. That God is one who can call the shots. That Jesus is one who knows all things and controls all things. And this shows us the type of king that Jesus is, that he is not some normal man, but he is the very son of God. And we see the disciples go. Look at verse 32. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, his owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. It happened exactly as Jesus said it would. It confirmed their trust and their faith. But as they're untying this colt and they're bringing it to Jesus, they're probably starting to notice, I remember a story about this. I remember a talk of a, of a Messiah who would come, who would ride into town on the colt of a donkey. This is one of many prophecies about a Messiah who would come. And if you look at the Old Testament, there was this promise to King David that one would come through his line who would rule forever and would restore Israel. It says in 2 Samuel seven thirteen, it says, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David, hearing these words, is imagining that his son Solomon is going to be the one to, to establish the kingdom and build the temple. But as you look at the failures of David and the failures of Solomon, David and Solomon and people beyond this began to realize that God had something else in mind. And as generation after generation went on, they began to connect this promise and tie this promise to the hope of a king to come. A, a, a true and perfect king who would make everything right and restore Israel to their place of being a light to the entire world. And we're doing a lot of Bible history here, but if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, God promised that out of Abraham, there would be a people who blessed all people. He's restoring this and this cult is a part of this. Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. 
one that's never been ridden. A royal animal could not be used for common use. And in this, Jesus is saying, by commandeering this animal, he's saying, I am the king. And kings can make demands. He says, the Lord has need of it. It's no longer yours. And the sense of the original language is to say that this is a king who actually owns the animal. He's the true owner. And why does he get to do that? Because he's sovereign. He has the right to do whatever he pleases. And now as Americans, we don't like that. We don't like to be told what to do, right? We're incredibly individual. You can't tell me what to do. I'm my own person. We have no king. Tim Keller tells this story of a British minister friend who came to the United States in the 70s. And he was gonna be, he was a pastor in the United States. And he wanted to understand uh, what it was to be an American. Not that we play football with our hands, but that other things about what it means to be American. And so this minister goes and he, he, he said, I wanna get what it means to be from the United States. So he goes to Philadelphia, goes to Philly. He goes and sees the Liberty Bell. He goes around town and he sees this placard that says, we have no sovereign here. If there's a statement that sums up America, it's we have no sovereign here. Nobody can tell us what to do. Nobody is over me. But if we're honest with ourselves, every single one of us are looking to someone to revere or honor or give attention to. Somebody who's influencing us. We do this with athletes. We do it with celebrities. We do it with Instagram influencers. We do it with thought leaders and politicians because the longing to be underneath someone, the longing to have someone we give our entire hearts to is not wrong, but it gets disordered. It's a flicker and a picture of something that's innate in us. Tim Keller again says that it's a memory trace of a perfect king, of an ultimate king, of a king of glorious splendor, undimmed before the breaking of the world, whose wisdom and nobility and love and compassion and greatness and beauty was like the sun shining in its full strength. We remember a king like that because all of us are loving and giving our whole selves to someone or something. All of us are giving our whole selves to our career or our relationship or the hope of something. And the reality is that all these other false kings that we try to submit ourselves to cannot bear the weight of what we put upon them. They will falter and they will fail. But Jesus says, I will take your burden. Put it on my shoulders. He's the only king who is strong enough to handle every desire and longing of our hearts. And for God to be that type of king, for Jesus to be the king of your life, it means he has to be in control of everything. He has to be big enough to handle everything in your life. But what this means is that you don't get to pick and choose when he does. You don't get to pick and choose what God gets a say in because if he is truly our sovereign king, it means there's nothing in our life that's off limits that he gets a say in everything. And we see this in the way that the disciples react. We see the disciples who, who would go. In verses 35 and 36, we see others who sacrifice. Verse 35, it says, and they brought it to Jesus, I'm talking about the cold, and throwing their cloaks on the cold, they set Jesus on it. And as he, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Some sacrifice, whether that was to make their cloak, the very thing that they would use to make themselves warm into a saddle, or they would lay it before the feet of Jesus as a pathway for him to enter as king. If he's the sovereign king, then the only proper response is to give him everything. And the idea of him being sovereign is only bad if Jesus is not good. But if he is good, and that means if, as we give him everything we have, there could be no greater joy found. 
There could be no greater thing that we could hope in that everything we give is worth it. And as this is happening, the people begin to get excited. Look at verse 37. It says, as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the almighty works, for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They know what's going on. They remember all the promises that they read and heard in Sunday school. They remember all that they remember hearing of this day of a coming Messiah and he's finally here. And they had suspected this. They had seen all the miracles and all the things that were supposed to accompany the coming of the Messiah pointing from this temporary healing to an eternal rest and joy. And they were rejoicing and praising God. And it's an interesting scene because the entire nation of Israel would have been going toward Jerusalem. And it's interesting because this crowd, as they're going to the Passover, they would just caravan together, thousands upon thousands of people, and they would sing songs back and forth to each other. They would sing these psalms. Has anybody ever been to like a European or a Central American or South American or African soccer match somewhere outside of the United States or watching on TV? What do they do the entire game? They sing and chant. I'm not even sure they're watching the game. They're just singing and chanting to one another and just enjoying the experience. It's this outpouring of joy. That's what I imagine is happening is they're singing these songs of a coming Messiah to each other. In fact, there's a section at the end of the Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. Literally, these Psalms for people on the way, people on the journey, people on the way to experience the redemption of their sins. They're singing about this coming Messiah to the Messiah who has come. He's here. They're singing songs of longing and hope and finding their fulfillment in Jesus. And the reality we see is that if we see Jesus rightly, the only right response is praise because he's the fulfillment of every longing. He's the mender of everything broken. He's the restorer of what's lost. And when you realize that Jesus is the only one who can be a king like this, you cling to Jesus because without him, there is no hope. Rebecca McLaughlin puts it like this. She says, if Jesus is the bread of life, loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, loss of Jesus means wandering alone and lost. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, loss of Jesus is eternal death. And if Jesus is the lamb of God, sacrifice for our sins, loss of Jesus means paying that price for ourselves. And so because of this worship is deflecting our trust and our affection away from ourselves and away from anything else we're tempted to make our king to Jesus alone. Now we look at verse 39, some miss this. There's always someone in the Bible here who's a party pooper. It's generally the Pharisees. So look at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell those kids to turn down their music. It's kind of what it comes across as. They feared this uprising. They feared the, the, the loss of power. They feared that Jesus may have been blaspheming. But in verse 40, Jesus says, I can't stop them because I'm going to be worshiped. It says in verse 40, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Meaning that Jesus will be worshiped because all creation sings and aches to tell the glory of God. Jesus is our sovereign and anointed king. What, what does that mean for us? Just three observations. The first is that Jesus is a king who weeps. That seems like a strange picture, right? 
Look at verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. When we imagine a king, you ever seen a, like a painting of, of an old king? He's always sitting on a horse. He always has his chest bowed out. He has this look of power and strength upon his face. What's the first picture we get of Jesus as king? Weeping. Crying for the city of Jerusalem. And as the city comes into view, Jesus just breaks down. There are three times in the Bible we see that Jesus cries. One is at the death of his friend Lazarus as his family's mourning. The second one is here. And the third one, Hebrews 5 tells us that as Jesus is in the garden, he is weeping before the Father about bearing the weight of our sin. Jesus showed us that it's okay to cry. There are legitimate reasons to weep. It is fully human to weep. It is, it is manly to weep. It is kingly to weep. The Bible gives us a full range of emotions and shows us that there are times to cry. In America, we don't cry. And in fact, in Boston, we've been called the frozen chosen, not just because just it's cold here, but because we don't show a lot of emotions. The Bible shows a lot of emotions and we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and we see why in verses 42 and 43. Jesus, he wept over it saying, would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surrounding you and hem you in on every side. Jesus knows their future. He knows of a day coming when the city will be under siege. And we see this in, in AD 70 as the Roman Empire sacked Jerusalem a little less than 40 years after Jesus says this. And Josephus, the, the great Jewish philosopher and historian, taught, wrote of a day when the city was surrounded and Jerusalem in an act of defiance against Rome burned the wooden fence around the city. So Rome built a stone wall. And in verse 44, we see that Rome raised the city, including the temple to the ground. It says, and they will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. And the reason why is that they missed it. Verse 42, that they, they missed Jesus coming to bring peace, not just not individuals, but the nation as a whole, the covenant people had missed their calling to be a light to the world. They had failed to trust Jesus as the true king and their final judgment was that God was going to destroy their city. And in verse 44, it says, the reason was, is that they did not know the time of his visitation. Now, knowing is not like they didn't know at all, but they didn't intimately know it. They didn't receive the knowledge that they had been given. It'd be like if one of you were to buy me a free vacation to Acadia, and if you want to do that, I'll, I'll allow you to do it. Um, and so you give me a free vacation to Acadia, you're going to pay for everything, you're going to pay for the gas, pay for the food, and then I never take you up on the offer. Now, I knew about it, but I can't say that I know what it's like to be at Acadia. I can't say that I've experienced it. I can't say that I love it. And to not go would be a rejection and a refusal of your hospitality. Israel rejected Jesus as king and refused to trust him. And when you've heard the gospel, you hear about what Jesus has done for you and you reject that, you're rejecting Jesus's hospitality. Now, I want you to notice Jesus's reaction. He didn't look at Jerusalem and say, you know what, forget you guys. I'm just going to throw a lightning bolt through your chest and we're just done. He weeps. 
And through tear-filled eyes, Jesus sees what you and I cannot see. And we see that the very heart of God is drawn to the broken and the needy. Rebecca McLaughlin again says that Jesus knows the end of the story when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, but this does not stop him from cleaving to us in our pain. In fact, pain is a place of special intimacy with him. We can laugh with anyone, but we cry with those closest to us. And the bond is strongest when their suffering connects with ours. Jesus connects to our suffering. And the very thing that drove Jesus to Jerusalem to walk the road, to go to the cross, was seeing our lostness and our brokenness, and he came to us. And so two questions about that. First of all is, do you see your own sinfulness? Do you see your own brokenness like Jesus sees it? Understand that it was his compassion that took him to the cross to die for your sins. And the second question is, do you see the brokenness brokenness of Boston like Jesus does? It's been said about a city that there is more image of God per square mile than anywhere else in the world. And when you look at a city like Boston, you look at your college campus, you look at your workplace, you see all these people crammed in on each other on the green line. You see the best of the city. You see its beauty. You see its creativity. You see its ingenuity. We're some of the, the brightest and smartest people in the world in this city. But also because everybody's here, you also see the worst. It's right in your face. And so for some of us, when we look at the city, we just want to flee. We want to get out of here as fast as possible. We want to get our degree. We want to leverage this for living somewhere else. Others of us just become it. We just end up reflecting the city. But the call for us as the church of God is to be broken people going to broken people, trusting in the Jesus who walked the road to make us new. Second observation, Jesus demands that he's the center of our lives. Now notice that Jesus' weeping is not weakness, it's conviction. And he's saying, I can't leave things this way. We see this as he begins to make things new as he cleanses the temple. Look at verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. Jesus enters in. He sees all the things that are dishonoring God. He sees how God is no longer the center of this place. It's no longer a place they could come and sit before him and confess their sins and find forgiveness. And there's a few ways that they were doing this. If you look at Mark's account of this, people were actually using the temple as a shortcut. So imagine someone were to walk through the back door of the church here, walk out through here, and we're like, I just needed a shortcut to the Mexican restaurant and walked out the front door. That's what people were doing. They were literally walking through the temple using it as a shortcut. We see here in the text today that there were people who were selling. There was an official coin exchange happening out there in the temple where you had to exchange your money for a special type of silver there was temple money. And oftentimes there was a surcharge in order to do it and people were defrauding people. And there were also people selling animals. They're selling animals for sacrifice. Now the place this was happening matters. It was happening in what was called the court of Gentiles. The Jewish people had actually pushed out anybody who was not a part of ethnic Israel from the only place that they could come and draw close to God. This, what was happening was injustice and greed and impurity that was pushing God to the margins of temple life. And so there are many ways that you and I push Jesus to the edges of our lives. One way is through our priorities. We can push Jesus to the very edge of our lives based on our priorities because what often drops when you get busy? It's it's spending time with the Lord. It's spending time with the church. 
Our pursuits can push God to the edges. Yes, Lord, I want you, but I kind of want to bend you around my school or my career or my desire for a mate. And God, I love you, but not more than this. Sometimes pleasure pushes God to the edges. I want to obey you, but not sacrificially. Not if that means I've got to sacrifice for you or for other people. But what Jesus is doing is coming in and restoring and redeeming this as a place of prayer to God. Because when we pray, we put God radically at the center of our lives. He wanted to heal this place, but we only get this healing when you allow Jesus to reprioritize what's going on in your heart. When you fully abandon yourself to him. The third and last observation is this. Jesus has to be the king of your whole life to experience freedom. Verses 47 and 48. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus does after he drives out all of the greed and all the false worship and all the injustice. He just sets up shop. Some scholars believe he literally was there every day up until his crucifixion. He just stays. Jesus radically places himself at the center of their lives and he teaches daily. And you notice that Jesus' teaching demands a response. You have the Pharisees who reject Jesus and you have the people who embrace him with joy, who hang on every single word. Jesus demands a response and that response demands our whole lives. Here, he's saying, I am the king. I am the center. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm here. You can have me. Every desire and longing ultimately fulfilled in me, but you have to have me as your king. You have to give me everything. And so the question is, how do you know if Jesus is your king? It means he has your heart. And you know he has his heart by answering these three questions. Is Jesus what you want most? What you love most is what you worship. It's what you give your time and your attention to. Do you love Jesus like that? Do you obey Jesus? Even when it gets hard, even when you disagree, do you submit to him? And lastly, do you trust Jesus? Do you believe that what he has for you is good? Let's pray. 